Voices. I'm Mary and I'm Karen and today um, we've got some fun stuff to talk about. So Mary, over the last, actually probably the last six months or so, I've really been captured by this idea of adventure and I don't know if it's just because I've now lived here in the UK for about five and a half years and so you know moving here was this massive adventure and then of course raising children my children are getting a little bigger so that was kind of an adventure and now I'm like oh where's my next adventure coming from so I've been watching loads of YouTube videos about people sailing and like living aboard with their kids and sailing around the world Um, in the last couple of weeks I've thought about getting a camper van and trying to take my kids to go camping um, for a week by myself um, because I don't know if Steve would be able to take time off but you know he he would love to go but yeah I've even thought like maybe I just need to make this happen so I'm actively seeking out adventure my my next adventure like what's going to be really cool to do so um so I was super excited about today's 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 episode and oh, interview is it, right it is all about adventure and it's interesting Karen because of course my children are that bit older than yours and I can remember that phase very clearly as well that you're kind of out of the nappy phase and, and actually your children are quite portable albeit hard work but you can go on an adventure um, and we did just that when my children were younger we did get the camper van and we did start going on fantastic holidays and um we're now at the other end, of course, so our next adventure is... is uh, we still do adventure as a family, yeah. but it's kind of what will our next adventure be now that my children are older and don't necessarily have to come on the adventures with us. Well, as I say, and I know you've got a really cool adventure that you're planning, which is actually related to today's interview. Exactly. You have organized to go on the matriarch adventure with Catherine Edsel. I have organized yes. to go on the matriarch adventure, which, uh, yeah... It, I have my own fears. I was going to say, it's scary, um, but it's isn't it? out of my comfort zone, but I feel in very, very safe hands with Catherine. Absolutely. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think it'll be really cool, actually. And so I am actually now considering, in full disclosure, um, I've been thinking about the matriarch adventure for a while, too. So when the opportunity came up to interview Catherine, I know I was super excited. Yes. So, so yeah, so we do have this connection with Catherine, although she's a local mom. Yeah. So she is, you know, you might have run into her on the, the school playground and not even realized it. <laughs> you know, she's, she's just like all the rest of us, raising a couple of children and, and doing the mom thing. But then she's got this adventurous side that you're going to hear about all today. So enjoy our episode and our interview with Catherine. Welcome, Catherine, to Gutsy Voices. We're so happy to have you today. Um, thank you for having us into your home. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, so we're going to start today talking about your adventures. And um, I think it would be really cool to start at the beginning. So can you tell us a little bit about how you became an expedition leader? Okay, so uh, rewind over 20 years. And when I was 27, I actually had a dance theatre company. So I, I studied performance arts really? at university. Yeah. And things were, you know, difficult with that at that time. I won't go into that story because that's like another world. <laughs> but at the, then my boyfriend and myself at the time, we decided to go and uh, away for a year. We wanted to escape, really. We wanted to go and do something useful. So... We'd always done volunteering projects in the university holidays. So we thought, well, why don't we 
you know, go off and uh, do something a bit longer term. So we applied by mail, you know, like wrote letters. <laughs> and we sent these letters off to various organisations around the world. And the first one that came back was for doing leatherback sea turtle conservation in Costa Rica. Oh, so we cool. took the plan and we went off. We'd already had some experience with the Greek uh, sea turtle protection organisation. So we were there for five months. I was the volunteer trainer and my boyfriend at the time, he was doing all sort of logistics and stuff like that. And this kind of led one thing to another. And we didn't actually, I didn't return home for two and a half years. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, so it was, and back in those days, you could send your return portion back to the airline and get a refund, right. which was okay. great. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that these days. But so, yeah, went off for, yeah, a number of years. We split up, actually, on, in the process, but I went on to work with different environmental organisations and NGOs and uh, human relations organisations, charities, all around. We went, I went from Costa Rica to Panama, to the States, to India, to Nepal, oh and then gosh. back again. So in this whole process was, was sort of like an experience uh, learning time. There were no formal qualifications at all, but it was more about learning how to how to live in different terrains, different environments, different conservation issues, how to lead groups of people. And then I came back and then I started to do more formal education into that and then went on to get my first job, which was in Indonesia, leading forest operations for Operation Wallacea. Gosh. Okay, so like this just sound, I didn't realise this part of your story yeah. before coming in. This is fantastic. <laughs> so you, um, you set off for five months. And end up staying away for two and a half years. What were you training? So, I mean, you kind of wanted to do a volunteer thing. You show up and say, right, I'm going to train. What were you training? So we were training volunteers. So volunteers would come um, to this Leatherback Sea Turtle pro Programme and they'd come for two weeks, three weeks, something like that, and they wanted to offer their services to help the conservation efforts. So I'd train them how to collect turtle eggs, how to dig nests, um, how to patrol the beaches in the middle of the night, because it was all night work, because leatherbacks come up and lay their eggs, and then the poachers come and take their eggs. So you're in this sort of conundrum where you need to get the eggs, you either need to, well, you need to get the eggs out and relocate them either somewhere safe on the beach or into hatcheries. Um, before the poachers come, because elephants, oh, not elephants, turtles, they're <laughs> kind of like, they're really big anyway, but they leave these massive tracks, like like oh, tractors. Right. So really a poacher can find. see where they've been. This is really exciting for me to hear because I was very privileged a couple of years ago to go to Costa Rica and see all this in person and go out at midnight with the people who possibly you trained. Mm, yeah, and yeah. It, is, it, is, it is amazing that how that whole nation has taken on board the conservation of these turtles. Yeah. It's really, would you agree? That yeah. You, you absolutely I mean, there's still problems. There's still I, problems. I went back to work um, maybe three years ago now, four years ago, and it was a slightly different part of the area, but it was, you know, the same coastline. Mm. And there's still, I mean, it's that was there. that was kind of even more difficult because they were they had a because there were so many poachers they'd be waiting in the bushes yes. and the first person who got to the turtle got the got the eggs oh, so it was a, a race yeah it was a race Gosh. and but i mean that was to kind of stop any violence between you know the teams that were going out and the poachers because it could get really nasty so they'd had this sort of general agreement that that was that was the way but obviously the poachers there were a lot more of them and we were patrolling the beaches up and down and they were seeing hiding in the and it's, but it's still how it is. 
Still how it is. Yeah. Well, and how did you learn how to do this stuff to train someone else? Because this is not your background. No, no. I mean, I did work with this um, Greek sea, sea turtle protection um, agency, although it's slightly different because that's less about poaching, more about predation. But, um, I mean, these things, you, any sort of citizen science work is really about being on the ground and learning the job on the ground. It's field work. So being a field scientist, um, which is basically what I was being, is, yeah. you know, they're quite, the jobs are quite repetitive. So once you learn mm -hmm. how to do them, it doesn't take very long to get expert and then you can train somebody else. So, okay. so all of this is about just being in the environment, in the right environment and experiencing it and learning it with your hands. And yes. yeah. yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So this is all before you were married and have children. Yes. So you're, you're traveling all over the world. Yeah. And then, but I know you are married and have children. Yes. So how did you end up back here in Kingston? Okay. So I met my husband in Indonesia. So I was leading the forest operations and leading jungle training uh, courses. He was the medic, so we need we we're very remote, so we needed medics to come out and and uh, yeah, he was the medic for this particular year. I didn't get together with him that year, but when I needed I was actually doing a recce for a new project in Honduras, and I needed a doctor to come with me, so I remembered him because he was very nice okay. and I called him up, and that was it, really. We got together. Um, I went out to Honduras to set up this new program, and then he came out to join me and then actually, we had our first child relatively quickly so there wasn't we didn't get married first we 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 had our family first and we got married afterwards but um but yeah which is very common actually yeah i think around here yeah, yeah. so gosh that's amazing so and actually i love how you say well then i went off to honduras like oh you know and then i popped off to sainsbury so yeah. i think that just speaks to how this is all just part of your life and, yeah and this is what you do which to me is so cool um so okay so so you have your did you have your daughter in honduras no we had her in kingston hospital actually so okay we were living in richmond at the time um with mm -hmm. yeah so we, have you always been based here then no yeah. i was north okay. london so my family in north london they're all whetstone barnet area so okay this is this is more for mark's work because he works in uh, st george's and teaching so um, gotcha. we had to kind of find an area where we could both go. but actually after my first daughter then we went he was on a rotation we went down to Arundel um sort of down in down towards Brighton yeah okay <laughs> yeah lovely place and then we went off to Australia for a year and my second daughter was born in Australia so your husband is fairly adventurous then as well or yeah he is he is in a different way I mean he does a lot of expeditions himself he does a lot of high altitude research and he he doesn't go as much as I do, but okay. he does go away and he still loves that. He's very, you know, he's very happy in that sort of environment in expedition lifestyle, so. Okay, so so let's take a step back. You're in Honduras, mm. you're, you're doing this, you're, you're an expedition leader, and then, and now you've met your husband. So now you've kind of come back and you've got a base here, but you're still going back and forth, is that right? Well, no, because when quite... the kids were very small, um, I basically wasn't an expedition leader anymore. And that okay. was actually quite a difficult time for me because I didn't really have another job. So there wasn't okay. anything, you know, you went to your NCT class and they're saying, oh, I'm going back to work. And you're thinking, oh, I, I can't go back to work. You know, <laughs> there is no work for me to do because my work's in a jungle or, you know, 
on a coral reef. It's like, you know, there's there's nothing for me to do around here. So was that a conscious decision? Well, or no, like you... Well, no, it was the ha- when I got pregnant. Yeah. So it was all very, very quick. So okay. <laughs> so I got pregnant and then came back. I wanted to come back, actually. I, you know, I decided Mark was the one and, I you know, I was going to be with him for the rest of my life. And, and you know, that's, that's, that's how it is. Yeah. And that was a decision I'd already made. But my plan was to get a job. Um, actually, I applied for a couple of jobs, you know, with Indonesian forestry commissions and stuff back in London. But then I found out I was pregnant and then they wouldn't take me because of, I was pregnant. And, you know, it was that kind of thing. And then I was suddenly without any plan. And then I had a baby. And then and then I was like, you know what it's like when you have a baby. Then right. everything else goes out the window for a while. And because I didn't have that structure, it was. And that's why we decided actually go to go to Australia, because. Um, my husband could on his sabbatical, he could take like a sabbatical and work over there. But okay. it also meant that I could, you know, just keep that. Because it's it's not really a travel bug, but it's definitely, a, a, you're used to having different experiences yeah. often. Yeah, that wanderlust. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was saying, moving to a new country is yeah. absolutely that, mm. right? Like yeah. it, it sets you up with a whole new set of But then I found out I was pregnant before we went. So that was, oh, yeah, gosh. so that was two unplanned children. Um, <laughs> very careless. Well done. Yes, well yeah, done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, it was, so that was, that changed that because we were originally going to go um, quite remote. But then because okay. I was going to have a baby, we went to Melbourne and we did some traveling around and I've got relatives in Melbourne. So that was, but that was, again, we went to Tasmania and we did go up to Darwin and, you know, to all the sort of national parks up there. And you're doing this with a newborn? Well, no, uh, well, half or and half. Yeah, I was very okay. pregnant and then I had a baby. So yeah, okay. yeah, <laughs> but yes. <Gosh>. So, <laughs> see, yeah. everyone tells me that, and when I tell people that I moved here with an eight-week-old, they all look at me with this face of shock. But I'm looking at you like, oh my gosh, you're in Australia doing adventures with a newborn. Like, I came to a city. Everything yeah, was yeah. here. That was not adventurous, but like. And I'm sitting here thinking, <laughs> and I've lived here 25 years. <laughs> we all have, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all look on everybody else and think, "Wow, how did they do that?" Exactly. So, okay. So, how long did you guys live in Australia then? Just a year. Okay. That was a planned period of time. Then I came back and actually went to North London because that's where my family were. And then Mark was actually off to Everest for three months. So I came back with a six-month-old, and then he went off for three months to do altitude research. And that was particularly hard because, you know, yeah. the second baby didn't sleep at all. Like, she just oh. didn't. So, so I remember those three months being very long. Um, but, but, you know, but at the same time, I wanted him to do He's like, I'm not going to go. And I said, well, you have to go because, you know... If it was me, I wouldn't want you to say I couldn't go. Yes. And yeah. I need to support you. And also, you know, that's you have to have that freedom. I think otherwise you end up feeling completely trapped and yes. contained. So yeah. 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 yeah, if you if you if you've if you've hooked up in a partnership where somebody's very free, mm. you, the yeah. last thing you want to do is clip their wings, no, right? No. Mm. But it's it's challenging. That's great. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, it seems you guys have built this very adventurous life and and have been good about making sure it still happens but but i also know that that once you had the children you stopped adventuring for you stopped expedition leading for a yeah. while so how long did you go between say the australia thing and starting up getting back into well it was actually so hannah yeah so hannah was born in australia and then it was when she was around 3 um, because you know, then you've got the toddler and the baby, and that's all yeah. quite busy. <laughs> right. But then she was when she that's turned, an adventure of its yeah, own. absolutely. Yes. Um, but when she turned three, um, it was actually the the year of William and Kate's wedding, 
and remember there was like a really long Easter holiday. Well, yes. there was anyway. And our school didn't go. They were only in kindergarten, but our school didn't go back. So they didn't, you know, some people, the kids oh. went home and then they, they went back to school and then they came out again for this holiday. But ours just had a massive Easter holiday. And I was thinking, oh, I've got to go somewhere. I cannot, <laughs> yes. you know, I cannot just stay here. And Mark was busy. And then I, originally I thought, oh, I'll take them on safari. And then I realised that they don't take children under 12 on safari. So I was thinking, okay. And anyway, safari, you're sitting in a truck a lot of the time. So then I... My my idea was I wanted to give them an experience that they wouldn't forget. So then I decided on elephants. So we went to an elephant sanctuary in Thailand and volunteered there for um, two, two, three weeks. And then my cousin also lived in Thailand, so we went to visit her. So we were away for a whole month, um, oh. which was amazing. And, you know, the kids loved it because they could chop up the watermelons go and mm-hmm. feed the baby elephants mm-hmm. you know learn about elephant conservation and i mean you know yeah. whatever they took from it but have that full experience where there's elephants literally around you the whole time and you're mucking out their sort of pens and playing on tractors and oh, so. let me just clarify is this just you and two me girls? and two me and the two girls so no husband no no you. and how old are the girls at this three point? and five amazing wow yeah yeah i mean it wasn't without its problems. Yeah. Hannah got quite sick. She got an ear infection because the thing is, the elephants all are in this big river, which is quite dirty and full of elephant poo. And, uh, <laughs> but the kids were in there with them, you know, chucking buckets yes. of water on them. And I think she got an ear infection from that water. Mm. But then, so then we had to go to hospital and, you know, she had to go on antibiotics. But it was, you know, and then the other daughter. And how old was the one? Three. The three year old yeah, got the ear infection. Yeah, okay. but you know, but. We That's got it was life. all fine. Yeah. We just went to the hospital. We got mm. the antibiotics. We came back, put them in the fridge with the elephant food, and <laughs> carried on. Yeah. Carried and on as going. you do, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. but it, yeah. Oh gosh, that's so cool. And, so, and I'm sorry, you were going to say something about your older one as well. Oh yeah, and then she got sick, but that was um, because she wanted to. You know how kids are funny like that? They're like, oh, she's sick. I want to be sick. And yes. Like, really? You want to be sick? <laughs> anyway, she, yeah, she just got tummy bug but she you know oh, but so there was stuff to deal with but yeah. it didn't detract from the overall experience the fact that I'd actually taken the kids and gone done something quite uh, adventurous yes. and quite exciting and quite um you know changing for them life changing for them do they still remember it yeah yeah, yeah. so we have photo albums and um oh, they I know just yeah. old, old fashioned photo albums and you know they sit and they pour over the oh. pictures and you know just remember them being little, being in that environment. So, yeah, they do remember That's it. amazing. And now this trip lit a fire, right? Is mm, this... Yeah, well, it was It was then that I thought, well, I have to do more of this. And then I started, there's, I started working for other um, expedition companies. So at that time, I couldn't go away for very long. And a lot of expeditions, like proper expeditions, are, you know, months long, you know, okay. at least a couple of months and I couldn't obviously give that time up. So then I was trying to find expeditions that were shorter that I could work for. And then, so I did do a few, so I did another one in Costa Rica, I did one in the Azores. I did little expeditions that had sort of time bound uh, perimeters. And then I decided that if I became a dive master, then I could lead dive expeditions and dive expeditions by their nature are a bit shorter because of the, you know, because you've got a big liverboard and it's all, oh, the, gotcha. so, yeah. so it's just a different, different kind of time scale. 
so then I decided to become a dive master um, because it was easier for me to lead dive expeditions. And I love the story of how you became a dive master because it's not like you just, you know, rock up and take an exam or go do like a two-week course. This took you a couple of summers, correct? Well, no, the, the, no? the training, because I already dived. So I dived um, with, you know, I had my rescue diver, so I was already okay. at a certain level. But I'd never become a dive master because I didn't want to become an instructor. So... Yeah. When I found out that I could lead dive expeditions as a dive master, I then did the training actually here in Kingston. So all the book work, all the pool work, the confined water work was here in Kingston. And then I did my um, the open water training out in Gozo because it was nearest. It was, Where is that? At Malta, just okay. off Malta. So gotcha. I did my... And then I went out to Indonesia to start leading as a dive master. So I did that for three consecutive summers. So I actually worked as a dive master after that. So I was working in the summers with the children. So the children came with me. And did your husband go with you as well? He came. So the first time we went, he came for the first two weeks just to, you know, help me get sorted. And then we had a local family um, who looked after the kids when I was diving. The second time I went, he came for the last two weeks just for a bit of a holiday. And then the third time he didn't come at all. So. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, yeah. That's crazy. And you would go basically for the whole summer? For yeah, six for weeks eight weeks. Summer? Or eight yeah, weeks. Yeah. Okay. So, and who who was coming on these expeditions with you then? These, you... these are, this was run by Operation Wallacea. And this was a university, mainly university-based uh, biodiversity science expeditions. So these are where professors and uh, people doing PhDs in particular subjects need volunteers to come and assist them with their with their data collection so then undergraduates can come and volunteer or you know help them get their dissertations they can add to their workload but they're actually doing scientific research but within a, a an expedition situation yeah and is most of your work in these expeditions related to science and research? Am I um, interestingly yes? Uh, even though I was never trained as a scientist, it's just it's really interesting to me. And conservation was obviously very important to me. And working alongside these guys, who are all real specialists of their field, so all really interested in the minutiae. So I could get a lot from people, you know. You're working with yeah. the bats, the the herbs, the the butterfly, you know, everything, and you can you know, learn and and assist and it's brilliant. And uh, you get to understand, you know, why it's really important to them and what it is they're trying to do. I, I love this aspect of your story, especially because I know several people in my life who have dreamed of becoming marine biologists or things like that. And for one reason or another, haven't done that. But here you've gone and while well, you're not a marine biologist, you're you're out there doing all the science just by volunteering and getting yourself in the right place. Yeah, so the yeah. so with Operation Wallace, so I was working as their monitoring coordinator, so I was working in their monitoring programme, and this meant that I was analysing reefs, and I was doing some quite detailed work on corals, and, you know, I could have produced a paper from it, but I didn't because I couldn't be bothered. But, <laughs> but, but you know, but the, right. but, but the work was there. And also... Um, when I was, yeah, they, they also asked me to lead the coral reef ecology lectures. So it's about learning, you know, self-directed learning. So yes. over a period of time, you can learn enough oh. to teach. So I learned everything I needed to know about the ecosystems that I was working within, um, obviously with the help of the scientists that are around me. And then I could teach to the undergraduates. Mm -hmm. So That's it was, amazing. it was, 
yeah and it's it's a nice thing to feel that like you said you don't have to go to university necessarily but you can you're, you can be a hands-on field scientist mm. just by being there and you know having that enthusiasm for it that's awesome i love that mm. um okay so and I, all of this I, i'm so excited about this today because this is Leading yeah, this, us is, this is yeah this is going <laughs> crazy uh, so anyway um <laughs> so so now you've started with your kids but where I've met you and what I know about you is the expeditions you lead for moms and the matriarch adventure. So can you, you, you become a dive master, you're doing these things. Um, but I love the story also of how you started your matriarch adventure. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the matriarch adventure was an idea, um, because I was leading lots of different expeditions, so I was doing dive ones. I was going away. I was I was I was away quite a lot on and off during the year. And then it was you know other mums in the playground saying, "I'd really like to do something like that." You know, your life's really interesting. It sounds amazing. Can we do something? And I just thought about it. And I thought, well, you know, I've got the skills. I could just organise an adventure for you guys. <laughs> so I hadn't you know hadn't been. I'd actually been to Namibia back in two thousand and two. And this was when I was leading for an organisation called Rally International. And I'd trekked for 300, no, 700 kilometres down the ephemeral river valleys, um, tracking elephants. And I remembered the organisation that we'd been collecting data for, and I called ERA, Elephant Human Relations Aid. And I contacted them. Well, I went to see if they still existed, actually, at that point. <laughs> and uh, they did. And so then I contacted them. I said, I've got this idea. I want to bring a group of women, you know, to have an adventure um, with elephants in Namibia, what do you think? And no, I didn't hear anything. And I thought, oh, that's a rubbish idea. You know? <laughs> <laughs> stupid of me. And then I thought, no, actually, I'm going to contact them again. And I said, you know, did you get my email? Had this idea. And then the woman came back, uh, Rachel, she's amazing. And she said, yeah, sorry, we're in the field. I just got you. I think it's a brilliant idea. Let's do it. Let's have a chat. So I told them the idea of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to bring groups of women and we wanted to track elephants, we wanted to help collect data, but also have that all female, really immersive wilderness experience. Because for me, I know that when, Namibia especially, because it's so vast, you can really get grounded there. You know, you really feel like you've sort of arrived back in yourself, no matter what's going on in your everyday life. So, um, so yeah. <laughs> I find it fascinating, Catherine, because, of course, you talk of this world of the wilderness, women in the wilderness. And I think that actually that first child and, and parenting can, can feel like a wilderness mm. when you're in the middle of suburbia. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's quite fascinating that, you know, for women to... I think women are in a wilderness a lot of the time. Yeah. Well, and you talk about that, too, that that was one of the things, the isolation of being a mother like all of a sudden you're you're here in suburbia but you are kind of by yourself and you know yeah that connection and so which is one of the things that you were aiming to do with this yeah yes because I think I mean for me expedition life for example every expedition is full of people you know you live cheek by jowl you've got really close communities everyone's helping or supporting a common goal and you see this in communities as well when you're traveling you know um, you know going through Nepal little villages everyone's helping each other you know and I, I'm, I'm not making it sound like it's some sort of magical you know utopia, utopia but yes. 
Don't it worry, does, I'm going to ask you about the hard bits. It does yeah. exist, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and I really miss that. I felt for me to be suddenly in Richmond or Kingston on my own mm. with this baby that I didn't, I couldn't communicate with, you know, she was crying all the time, that there was nothing worse for me. You know, and I, I didn't have my mum nearby. You know, I didn't have my sister nearby. I didn't have anybody nearby. And I didn't really know anybody because I wasn't from a normal workplace. So I was completely isolated. Mm. And I really feel that being part of a group of women who are all there with a common sort of goal, common aim, even if it's just to have an amazing time, mm. is, is, yeah, it, it, it creates that sort of, I suppose it's... It, it's almost like you can relax into it. Mm. You know, it's it's relaxing because it's supporting. Yes. And isolation is a very interesting word, isn't it? Because you can be surrounded by hundreds of people that you are not connected mm. to somehow. Mm. And you will feel so isolated. Mm. Or you could be alone in nature and feel not isolated at yeah, all. Yeah. Or, or with a group of yeah. 10 people. I think it's fascinating, Catherine, when you take your adventures you're very clear around what the adventure will look like and you make sure that before the person comes that, that you, they're the right person, really. Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, I suppose in that there's you, you can't misunderstand. I mean, it's not... Going on this sort of adventure is not... Um, it's a challenge. It's not a relaxing mm. experience. You know, you're not going to sit around and read loads of books. Mm. It's not that kind of thing at all. It's very much putting yourself into an environment where you're you're going to be you know the cobwebs are going to be blown away and that's a good thing but for that to happen you've got to you know you say you're you know out of your comfort zone so it's going to be slightly uncomfortable at times but that is a really good thing because yes. that means that you can then really appreciate the difference you know between well and that's one thing I want to ask you about what are some of the the uncomfortable bits about going on these expeditions because I, I for one, can really easily get drawn into this this sense of adventure and, gosh, this is something new and exciting. But the reality of it is that you are dirty and you are, you know, out there for 10 days, at least on the matriarch adventure. So talk to us. What are some of the challenges that you and your expedition members come across? See, for me, I actually don't find it challenging, and okay. obviously, because I love... Actually, that's a good thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. To, to be not be challenged. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it all. I mean, that's why yeah. I do it. It's because I really love the fact that there are no mirrors, and you can't see what you look like, and the fact that, you know, you're, you, you suddenly start to not care about anything to do with your clothes or, you know, your things. You, I mean, you have to look after them because they're the, all you've got, so you don't want to lose them all. But apart from that, you don't... It's all irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And there's no mirrors. There's no... It can't wash. So you've got your wet wipes, which, you know, keep you sort of smelling okay. <laughs> and... But I think people find challenging because there is a close proximity to each other's. Mm -hmm. um, I, I relish in that. So I really like the fact that you're always with people, but some people are like oh you know I need to get away and that's okay because you know there is a vast landscape it's just you have to make sure that you tell people where you're going and you don't just wander off because obviously there's wild animals as well um so yeah usually I'm I'm sort of I'm best asked if people have questions you know so I'll always say you know that so they'll come to me with a something that they're worried about and I'll put their mind at rest so okay so yeah. let me ask you a yeah. question then um going to the toilet okay so toilets <laughs> 
when we're in certain areas, we have um, compostable toilets. Okay. Um, but most of the time, we're wild camping, which means that you have a shovel and you have your toilet paper and you have your little bag that you put the toilet paper in. And are you doing this in front of everyone? No, I no. Think so that's the, what scares me more. Like, is someone going to see me doing no, this? No, there's, okay. I mean, there's, there's loads of rocks and trees that you can go behind. Okay. And, and actually, quite soon, you realise that you just get into your little zone. So you just go behind a bush. You don't look at anybody. You just squat down. Just focus on what's in front of you. Do your business and then and then go again. So it's not... And yeah, very soon you, you don't even care if there's somebody peeing next to you. Gotcha. It is so interesting, isn't it? The, <laughs> thing, the things that we all go around with our own little fears. That I, I'll, often, I'll often squat in Richmond Park. It just doesn't bother me. If I need to go to the toilet, I go to the toilet. And so there they, we are. There we are, listener, you now know. <laughs> you me. They're bottomed in the park. Yes, it is me. So but, what's your question then? What would you, what would you ask? So Kathleen? I probably would be that person. One of my fears around it would be, wow, I'm going to spend 10 days in close proximity with people that I don't know and that I just might need to retreat sometimes Mm -hmm. because I'm a very gregarious person, but I love to retreat to my own space. And so that for me would be a big challenge. Yeah, so there's ways to do that. And I think it's always about being clear. Mm -hmm. And when I say this to everybody in expedition, communication is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So if if I don't know what's going on, I mean, I'm very observant, but if I'm not a mind reader. Mm -hmm. So if I don't know what's going on in your head, and you're struggling with something, then you really have to tell me. So if you came to me and said, you know, I really need some time out on my own. So then I'd say, okay, well, there's a few options here. We can, we can, you can sit in the front of this truck so you don't have to talk to anybody. Or we can talk to everybody and say, you know, would we, maybe this truck can be quiet for two hours. Yes. You know, just peaceful. And then if you didn't want to be in this truck, you go to the other truck where they're all yeah. laughing. Yeah. You know, so it's, or if we get to a site and I'll say right now is time, if you want to go and take, you know, half an hour 40 minutes on your own just let me know where you're going just go off and yeah. you know stare at the sunset you know yeah. and also bringing meditative times into it in the morning we start off with yoga which is again you're with other people but you're just not and you're just enjoying it's about grounding again like just being comfortable in your surroundings so there's definite ways to facilitate people needing space mm. and I need space too you know yeah. I mean I love it but I also sometimes don't want to be talked to for a minute and so I'll just you know create that that boundary and but it is mostly about communication if there's no communication then things go wrong yes so well and then so so the actual expedition part isn't a challenge for you and you've been very kind about answering our little questions i'm sure there's loads more <laughs> but what about the setting up of the expedition are there challenges for you there yeah so i mean like with anything when you're juggling family it's just about making the balance right so that I'm not away too much because that upsets my children and my husband if I'm not there too much but also um, getting enough that, so that I feel that like I'm still still creating because it is it's a very creative thing for me to create these adventures and they're different every time because it depends on who's coming on them so so yeah so the challenges are just to make sure that it 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 works for everybody really. so and 
And does it work every time for everybody? Because you've led several of these now, yes? Mm. The, like, because I know, I know you've led the Matriarch Adventure a couple of times, or more than a couple of times. Fifth time now. Is it the yeah, fifth time yeah, yeah. coming up? Okay, and then you've also, I know there was one you led off of Madagascar. Yeah, Blue, Blue Moon, yeah. Yeah, and so as you've done all of these, I'm imagining they all can't go perfect, so... Or yeah. do they go perfectly? Maybe it, they do. Maybe I think, I'm, I'm... I think it's interesting. Again, it's this sort of type two fun element, which I don't know if you heard of this idea. No. So type one fun is fun. You know, it's fun at the time. It's, it's <laughs> okay. fun, fun, fun. Type two fun is when it's actually not that fun at the time. And people are struggling for various reasons, whether it's personal or physical or emotional or whatever. They're struggling. So for me, it's to provide that sort of holding environment so that when it's all over they feel like they've achieved something and you come through and then it's really fun. It was like, that was amazing. What I just did was amazing. But at the time I was, it was really hard. And to know that you're safe within that and that I know that you're going through this as well. You know, I'm not oblivious to this at all. I know exactly what's happening, but to facilitate that, yeah, that type two fun um, and that sort of, it's amazing. And yeah, just having women write to me afterwards, you know, women who were really struggling at the time, just writing to me and say, you know, thank you so much. That was incredible. I really loved that. And, you know, it's really changed the way I look at what I could do in the future. It's that thing, isn't it? I think, you know, some people just that struggle. I can remember when my daughter was very young, the thought of going to a supermarket with this young baby yeah. that might, you know, holler at any moment. That was a really, really scary thing. Yeah, I never went to the supermarket no, with my daughter. And I think it, it, <laughs> And I think what happens, as mothers, we, we, we go for a long, long time kind of holding this mm. life together. Then perhaps the time comes when we, we really want to put ourselves out of our comfort zone just so that when we come home, those things that felt like big challenges, they're put into mm. perspective yeah, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Have, have you had your own type two fun adventure? <laughs> Actually, I was thinking that was actually reaction. when I went with my daughter, we went with my family, um, we we trekked the foothills, we trekked from Shivalaya to Namchi Bazaar in the Himalayas. Um, and Namchi Bazaar is kind of where now everyone flies into Lookland, comes in and they all walk to Everest Base Camp. So it's sort okay. of, but the beginning bit was where before there was an airport in Lukla, everyone who wanted to climb Everest or go that far had to come up this route. And it's quite challenging. I mean, it's where we we went there because it was ten years since my husband had done this uh, his extreme Everest project. So we went with our family, and one of the men, the guys that he was working with, brought his family. So there's two families were doing it together. So there was four adults and five children, and we're trekking, and it's hard. And <laughs> my daughter one time she she literally stood at the bottom of this hill and she mooed like a cow she just went oh <laughs> and I just thought she was not gonna you know and that's hard because children they they wear everything on their sleeve you know if they don't want to do something they tell you right there and then it's not like grown-ups who can just sort of hold it in a little bit and then right. release it slowly in a, in a mild way um no they're they're completely out there so there was all we always we were always trying to cajole somebody to to be okay <laughs> yeah. yeah and that was quite hard sort of 
energy wise because then you get to the place where you're going you're exhausted you know you've been trekking for hours you put the packs down and the kids will be off climbing trees and having fun you're like yes. hang on a second yes. a minute ago you were like you couldn't walk another step and now you're playing football you know but so yes yeah, so that was i think i found that quite challenging but um, just because it was different um yeah and that's interesting. I love that. So then you made it. Yeah, yeah. And then your ch- I'm guessing your children's memory of that was that was really It was amazing, the best thing right? they've ever done. <laughs> and they have no yeah. recollection of how how they won. The no, I think world, I right? think actually my eldest she 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 does request non-walking holidays now. So yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. It was so she's like, "Can we have a swimming holiday?" So, uh, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So let's go back to this a little bit about how you balance this family life now mm. with this adventurous expedition leader life how does that how does that work because you do have two children in school and a husband who has a job and yeah I think I mean if it was I would lead more if I could but I can't so I think it's you know I'm I'm just sort of toying with the balance and again it's about communication between myself and my husband and myself and my children and keeping that wide open so that they can say if they think I'm away too much, you know, they can say if they think it's not helping. I mean, actually the children, because it's been a lot harder because now they get the bus to school, they can actually cook if they need to. Um, you know, they're, they're a bit older, so they're a bit more self-sufficient. When they were younger, it was much harder because I had to get um, either my mum or Mark's mum here to facilitate all the running to school because they don't walk to school, they live at schools further away, so they have to be driven there. Um, so that was a big deal because Mark couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was hard. And we don't have a spare room. So, you know, there's, you know, people sleeping on the sofa bed. Mm-hmm. And it it was it was hard. But again, it's, yeah, it, it's OK. And I think it was everyone realising that this is really important to me and that without it, I'm going to be the grumpiest mum ever. So, you know, I need this for myself. And... Yeah, I just do it less than I probably would had I, you know, if I... Well, and I think you said something interesting before we started our interview about um, about how your family actually craves routine. Yeah, and, yeah, so... Your daughter, yeah. Yeah, so there is that aspect where... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'd, I'd like to take them more away with me, but obviously they have their school and, and yeah, my daughter, she really likes routine, so she... she likes things to be the same and she's actually fine about me going away because we talk about it and she said well you've done this before mum you know I know this is part of the routine routine that I'm away so I don't miss you anymore because I'm used to it (laughs) you know so it's sort of that just create making that part of how our life is um which you know at the beginning wasn't quite as easy because you know she but that's you know that's where having a really close family is really important. So because I had my mum and my mother-in-law, even though they don't live locally, the fact that I could actually enrol them into this Mm. meant that I could facilitate it. If I hadn't had that, I couldn't have done it at all. Amazing. Wow. So, and I I love that, like, because you you do talk about how without your family support that all of this other adventuring wouldn't happen. No. But I think also because that adventuring happens, you're able to be there for your family. Mm. It's this nice complete circle yeah, yeah yeah and that you've that you figured that out I think is amazing I think it's necessity really? yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah I mean I did, I gave a talk once called necessity is the mother of adventure and uh oh, I love that title and it sort of was looking at the whole sort of 
the you know folly or bliss joseph campbell i don't know if you know that sort of no. the, oh well that's another his an archetypal story of how you know as an individual you are on your your path and you know you have to be true to to your path mm. so it's it's about sort of following those that hero's journey but the heroine's journey you know why should it be just guys right. would you say <laughs> and following your gut yeah yeah absolutely mm. I love that. Well, and then there's one there's one last thing I want to talk to you about before we end your interview, and that's actually the talks that you've given, mm. the TED Talk, um, because I find this fascinating. Um, and listener, if you haven't seen Catherine's TED Talk, you can find it on YouTube um, if you if you search her. But uh, and you should do because it's a lovely talk, and I've watched it a few times myself. And I watch this, and I think, oh my gosh, she you're absolutely a professional speaker. Like you knew exactly like. You were, you were absolutely fantastic. Well, um, your you. stage presence, your confidence, your stories. It was great. I loved it. And then I read through my notes and I find, actually, you don't give big talks like this all the time and that you hadn't ever talked to a large group of people before you gave this talk. Yeah. So, I'd, I mean, obviously, I've stood up in front of people and given instructional talks, you know, when, you know, how to use a machete and that kind of thing. But, but I'd never... <laughs> time, wait a time out. I love that that's the example. Well, you know, I've taught people how to use a machete, yes, yeah. but... <laughs> but I'd never I'd only ever given one talk before and that was to you know about 100 people in the top of a pub you know and someone said oh will you tell them you know cause I was talking about the idea of the matriarchal adventure and he yeah. said oh this is great will you give a talk and this is part of the yes tribe I don't know if you know the yes tribe they're an amazing group yeah. of people anyway so I'd done that talk and then because that had gone so well and it wasn't actually that hard I thought oh this is cool and I'd always love TED Talks I always go to them when I need inspiration or if I'm feeling a bit crap it's just like let's listen to Renee Brown or someone amazing who's just talking you know beautifully about things and so I wrote off to TED London because I thought, well, where do I want to give a talk? I don't want to go to like Manchester or somewhere I don't know or somewhere overseas that I have no relationship with. I'm from London. I'll give TEDx London. So I wrote to TEDx London and it just so happened that their criteria was that the next conference was going to be at Confidence. And I was like, well, I'm going to go on this adventure and I'm going to... I hadn't done it yet. But oh, really? No, no, I hadn't done you it. You hadn't done the major... I hadn't done the... It was before. So oh, I applied before. Okay. I didn't realise yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wrote off and I said, oh, I'm going to lead this adventure. It's for women. It's about confidence. You know, come back and they feel more confident in their lives. Blah. Anyway, sent it off. Went on the adventure. Had the adventure, which is amazing. Came back and then there was, you know, an email saying, yeah, we love it. You know, can you give a TED talk? And I was like, okay, okay, yeah, fine. They said, well, we need a draft of something. So I literally... There was no thought. I mean, this is when you know that it's supposed to be. Yes. When there was no thought at all. I just sat down, wrote a piece, didn't hardly edit it at all, just wrote the thing. It was about, you know, two pages long, sent it off. And uh, I thought, right, let's, you know, see, see what happens. happens. Had no sort of expectations at all. Came back and they said, yeah, we love it. Um, and, and I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, is there any feedback? You know, do I need to change anything? No, no, it's perfect. Mm. I was like, oh okay and then I thought oh my god now I've got to learn this thing <laughs> because that's the thing with a TED talk unless you're an amazing speaker which I wasn't yeah. the only way you're going to get through this because you're being you know I was standing in front of 1,500 people in Sadler's Wells Theatre and I was being videoed and this is you know it's now on YouTube forevermore yeah. so you have to get this thing right so then I was like oh my god how am I going to do this because I or a lot of the paragraphs are kind of similar so as I was trying to learn it they were all just morphing into one and I'd miss massive chunks out and Aww. and it was hot and it has to be very specific they want it to be like 11 and a half minutes you yes. know it's got yeah. to fit into this time frame you're not allowed to go over 
So then I wrote to them, I said, thank you very much. But, you know, do you know of any voice coaches or anyone can, who can help me um, as part of your scheme? And they said, well, we do have a couple of volunteers. So they put me in touch with a really lovely woman who I went to three times and she just really helped me embody it. And because I did perform, and this is the irony, I was in Sadler's Wells Theatre giving this yeah. talk. Whereas when I was at university, I studied dance and dance is, you know, Sadler's Wells is yes. where all the dance happens. Oh. So I was going to be on stage in the theatre, which I had, you know, seen all my heroes in talking not even dancing so then but what we did to learn the talk was to actually use physical contact so i'd be tapping my body if you watch me i'm doing certain things certain gestures and these gestures are cues for my brain to remember how to say things oh, how so cool. yeah so that's how it, that's how oh, i remember now it. i'm gonna have to go back yeah, and yeah. Again. <laughs> see because i didn't notice that at all yeah, like yeah. I, I just noticed your presence and actually the other thing i noticed was that you were wearing flip-flops yes and i loved that <laughs> i loved that. well they were red flip-flops you see because red for me because you're standing on this red spot and red's very grounding so i bought and i have a load of red shoes anyway but you know red shoes are are the thing that i i go to and so that was and i actually went out because i had I was on after the lunch break. So when there was everyone had gone to lunch, I said to them, do you mind if I just stand on the stage and like just have a look, you know, because this is really massive. And um, they said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So I went in and I, I was just like doing my power poses, you know, standing on the spot. But the thing I was most worried about was the little clicker because you're not allowed to have many slides, but they do give you a clicker to show a few slides. And they didn't give it to me. And so they were calling me up on stage and saying, Catherine Erdsall, and clapping, and I had no thing, and I was like, where's the thing, where's the clicker? And someone oh. had to, so actually at the beginning, I fluffed a bit, because I'd pressed the slide, and the wrong slide came on, and then I was looking at, trying to speak, trying to, you know, stay focused, but um, oh, yeah, wow. anyway, it was, it was, yeah, very nerve-wracking, so there's a little stumble at the beginning, but after that, I kind of got into the zone again. Oh, but. that's amazing. So now, have you spoken since? Yeah, I mean, I don't love speaking, um, it's not something that I think, right, I'm just going to do loads of talks, because it was really scary. I mean, yeah. it was one of those things where your body sort of dissociates. I could actually hear, my, as I was talking, I could hear myself talking, and then I could hear myself hear myself talking. It's like oh. I really separated in that moment. And I have done, I, 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 I try different ways. So there's the learning it, which is the TED way, and then there's the complete improvisation, which is fine if you've got a supportive audience, because it doesn't matter what happens. And then there's the sort of part learning it with cues and there's the slides. So I try with different ways and I don't, yeah, I do, no, let me say this right. I love giving talks, but they're quite difficult for me. Well, and I love that. I love that the machete talk, yeah. really easy, not a big deal, yes. but talking up in front of a group and, and that, that that's the scary bit. That, yeah. That's so, that's yeah. amazing. And I, that's what I love about Gutsy Voices. <laughs> Well, thank you so very much, Catherine, well, thank for being you. with us today. Thank you so much. So we are back at Gutsy Voices headquarters. Um, and as you probably could hear, we loved today's interview. We had so much fun. In fact, I didn't even want it to stop. I didn't want it to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could have stayed. In fact, um, I'm really sorry, listeners. We did stop the recording, but we actually chatted with Kath for a little bit, Catherine, for a little bit afterwards. Um, just about a few things, actually. I realized during the interview, I didn't ask her who comes along on her adventures. Mm. But I think that's really important for our listeners to know. There are people from all over, like literally all over the world, all different places in their lives. Um, you know, it's just kind of who's up for it and, and yeah, then it she was, signs. It so. was interesting as well, wasn't it? She was saying that for some people, 
it takes them a few years. They spot it and indeed, you know, put put it in the storage on the bucket list and then perhaps don't think about going on it for another three years. And that might be down to personal circumstances or just not feeling quite ready. But that's okay because sometimes people need more time. I like thinking of it like a cup of tea because that's how it's been for me. Yes. You know, you, you've got the you've got the cup of hot water and you put the tea bag in or you put the tea leaves in yes. and it starts to steep a little bit. And you're like, yeah, that, that sounds good. Yeah. But that's, I'm not quite ready yet. I'm not, I'm ready not quite yet. ready yet. I'm yeah. going to let that steep a little longer. And then it just kind of, it keeps brewing and it gets darker and darker and, and bigger until finally you're like, okay, this is really strong. I need to go now. Yes. So yeah. um, that's kind of how I felt about the matriarch inventor anyway because I originally heard Kath speak at a group a couple a year and a half ago I think we decided and I remember sitting there seeing her photos and and hearing her talk about this thinking oh my god I really want to do that um but I just didn't think that time in my life was right it was kind of like I don't know how I would make that happen but the more I hear her talk about how she makes it happen the more I realize yeah, I really want to go. So I'm hoping I can I can make that happen. I hope so too. And 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 so much of um, Catherine's talk about her TED talk really resonated with me because I did something very similar a few years ago. Right. I saw a call out for t- a TEDx talk and did exactly the same as her. Just rambled and wrote and didn't edit it and just sent it off and kind of thought I quite fancy doing my TED talk and. Uh, that's how we connected. I'd seen her TED talk and just contacted her and said, I, I just got this feeling you and I could do something. I just would love to meet you. Um, oh, so I, cool. I really respect Catherine and that, uh, yeah, she kind of goes with her gut and she allows things to evolve. But if she sees something that feels that's what I need to do. Yes. Well, and actually, I think it follows along a little theme that we've seen throughout our episodes. It's funny to me what our guests think is gutsy versus not like I'm going to take away this image of her teaching people how to use a machete and being absolutely fine which would terrify me to death Mm. but getting up on stage and talking to the people that's what scared her whereas for me it's like well it's just some people right so um yeah I think that's it's really interesting to me what what people think is gutsy in others versus what they think is gutsy in themselves so I I agree yeah to me that was really forward today um all right so i think it's time to talk music always it's always time always to talk, time talk music, music. Karen. <laughs> all right so go ahead give us what's the song we're going to walk away singing today well it can only be one thing i think it needs to be the circle of life oh because Catherine was talking about all sorts of her aspects of that conservation work she's done and the research that she's done and i'm really grateful for people like Catherine who it's not the thing they've studied it's not the it's not the thing they went to university to do but she's She's an example to me, a shining example. If you want to learn something enough, it doesn't matter what age you are or what your background is, somebody will always want to teach you. Yes. Well, and you can always learn. Mm. You don't have to do that formally. Oh, that's really good. Actually, my children have been singing that song a lot lately. So I'm going to have that in my head now for the rest of the day. It'll be great. Brilliant. So, all right. Well, thank you again for joining us another on another week of Gutsy Voices. We look forward to seeing you back here. Um, and just so you know who our Gutsy Voices team are, um, I'm Karen Barrett. And then I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Mary Bourne. And William Bourne is our producer and editor. So thank you again, and we look forward to seeing you back.